0: When he re-entered Capernaum, some days later, a rumor spread that he was in somebody's house. Such a large crowd collected that while he was giving them his message, it was impossible even to get near the doorway. Meanwhile, a group of people arrived to see him, bringing with them a paralytic whom four of them were carrying. And when they found it was impossible to get near him because of the crowd, they removed the tiles from the roof over Jesus' head and let down the paralytic's bed through the opening. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the man on the bed, My son, your sins are forgiven. But some of the scribes were sitting there silently asking themselves, Why does this man talk such blasphemy? Who can possibly forgive sins but God? Jesus realized instantly what they were thinking and said to them, Why must you argue like this in your minds? Which do you suppose is easier? To say to a paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or get up, pick up your bed and walk. But to prove to you that the Son of Man has full authority for, to forgive sins on earth, I say to you, and here he spoke to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. At once the man sprang to his feet, picked up his bed, and walked off in full view of them all. Everyone was amazed and praised God and said, we've never seen anything like this before. Amen. May God bless to our hearts an understanding of his Word clerk of the Superior Court in Buncombe County, and I called him the other day and I asked him what the penalties were for disturbing public worship. I asked him about this because I was reading about this man who had gone into the city of Capernaum being carried along by four of his friends because he was paralyzed. Jesus was conducting worship he was teaching either in somebody's house or maybe even in the synagogue at Capernaum. And I'm sure that our friends of our denomination, if they were present, would have agreed with the last sentence here. We never saw anything like this before because the roof was broken up and the man who was crippled was let down through the roof, uh, I suppose by means of ropes, upon a stretcher into the very presence of Jesus. Now, sometimes I have been disturbed when I've tried to preach and I get a little hot and bothered inside. I've never said anything, but I've always hoped that people would marvel at my patience and be inspired by that. But (laughs) I don't know that they have. Uh, Anyway, uh, I've wondered about that day in, in Capernaum. And Jesus was teaching to these people those matchless truths that fell from his lips. And suddenly little bits of plaster began to fall from the ceiling and the people began to look up and then dirt got in their eyes and they had to look away. And then of all things, the commotion goes on and down into their presence is Lord, a man on a stretcher, a poor, paralyzed man. Now he had been brought there by four of his friends. They wanted to get him to Jesus. But when they got to this place where Jesus was, the crowd was so thick that they couldn't get him inside, and so they had to think of some other way to do it. So they went around to the side of the house, and they went up a stairway, and then they took the tiles away and the brush and the mortar that would have been there, and they left this man down into the presence of Jesus. And how wonderful the composure of Jesus was. He was so poised and in command of everything that he was touched by the utter audacity and the faith of these. And uh, as the man was lowered down, Jesus looked at this poor paralyzed man. But you know what the scripture says? It says when Jesus saw their faith, the faith of the four who brought them in there, he looked at the paralyzed man and he said in in uh, the original language, "It is Technon, my child, my son, your sins are forgiven." And then he said, "Get up and walk." Now this is the order in which the gospel is meant to be given. My son, your sins are forgiven. I wonder when he said those words if some of these people who had labored so hard to get him there would not have been disappointed. Why didn't Jesus say, get up and walk first? But Jesus first dealt with the problem of the man's heart. He was a discerning physician of the soul. And Jesus saw that this man, like all men, have a basic need for forgiveness. For forgiveness. This is what the love of God has brought to us. And in the Key 73 program, which we talked about at our family night supper, and which our church session has asked a committee to be responsible for in this local congregation, we will be seeking, along with 200,000 other local congregations in Canada and in the United States, to call our continent to faith in Jesus Christ. Dr. Theodore Radke, the executive director of Key 73, says that we should do it with love and forgiveness. Now here I see the love and the forgiveness of God at work, and I think it gives to us a helpful example of how we may be able to bring a blessing to other people as we bring Jesus Christ to them. Four people helped in bringing this man to Christ. And when I think of the four people who came helping, I think that Key 73, and one of the geniuses of the program, uh, one, one part of its genius, is that it embraces all kinds of people. There are some people who can speak publicly, and there are other people who cannot. There are people who, uh, by reason of illness, cannot be present at meetings. Uh, there are people who have singular gifts of God which they will use in an effort uh, to reach others for Jesus Christ through the key 73 program I think first of all about the friends who listen on this radio program of which we're a part every Monday this service is rebroadcast and scarcely a week goes by that I do not receive a letter from someone who is driving down the road and turns into a motel and writes me a letter on motel stationery telling me that something in the sermon that day in the message from the Word of God got into their mind and heart and caused them to write requesting prayer or requesting a copy of something that was said. Then I get letters from people who cannot come out uh, to public worship because they are infirm, they are enfeebled, and they wonder sometimes how their lives can be useful. And so my heart goes out to them almost immediately as one of the four who can help bring our continent to Christ. You know, there was once a shoe salesman in America, a thick-set, heavy shoe salesman who had been won by a Sunday school teacher to faith in Christ in Boston, whose ambition was to make a million dollars and who went from Boston to Chicago in pursuit of that ambition. And in Chicago, he saw the needs of the ragged children in the street for a Sunday school so that they could learn about Jesus. The methods which he employed were so disturbing to some people uh, in the established churches that they called him crazy. They called him Crazy Moody. Dwight L. Moody was his name. But he was tremendously successful. He introduced the YMCA program to America, and he had such a fantastic Sunday school that a candidate of the Republican Party for the presidency of the United States, when he was president-elect, Named Abraham Lincoln, once went to Mr. Moody's Sunday school and was impressed by the the hundreds of little ruffians from the street who came in to Moody's Big Sunday school, which he had organized to tell them about Jesus. Well, now, how does this connect with people who pray in the support of Key 73 or pray that others may come to Christ? Well, Moody's work in Chicago is not generally what is best known about Mr. Moody. In fact, Mr. Moody really was launched into his worldwide ministry, not in this country at all, but over in Great Britain. And it came about in this way. He had gone there in 1874, almost unknown, 37 years of age. He had been asked to preach in a Baptist church in London, One morning when Mr. Moody spoke, there was a large congregation. At the conclusion of his message, he asked the people in the congregation who really were not sure that they had ever committed their lives to the total Lordship of Christ to stand. To his great astonishment, practically everyone in the congregation stood up. Mr. Moody thought that he had been misunderstood, so he explained again carefully what he desired he desired to see people who wished to make a thoughtful commitment to Jesus Christ as really Lord of their lives to stand. Again, the entire congregation practically stood. Mr. Moody was overwhelmed. There was a prayer following it, and there was much moving of the Spirit in that assembly that day. Well, what Mr. Moody did not know that morning, and what he later came to find out, is that there was a sister uh, there that morning uh, young woman who was a believer who had a sister in her home who was a cripple an invalid whose name is Mary Ann Adlord and that sister went home clutching her little church program and taking it in to her sister who was an invalid in bed fast and she said to her sister Mary Ann the man you've been praying for to come here has been in our church this morning he spoke, and the Spirit of God spoke through him, and the whole congregation was moved. Underneath Marianne Adlard's pillow, there was a Bible. And inside that Bible, there was a clipping, which Marianne Adlord had cut out of a little Christian magazine and had placed inside her Bible. It was a clipping that related to the Sunday school ministry of a man by the name of Moody in the city of Chicago in the United States. Marianne Adlard had prayed that God would bring that young man with his disturbing ideas and yet his huge desire to see people come to Christ to her church. And in response to her prayer, God had brought that man all the way from Chicago into the city of London and into that Baptist church that morning. That evening, there were so many people present that the church could not contain them all. And a real revival of faith in Jesus Christ broke out in a contagious manner in that church and spread into the community. Mr. Moody, as he grew older and as he learned of Marianne Adlard and later met her, said that he never questioned but what the anointing from God that came upon him and made him a gifted communicator of the Christian message came about as the result of a woman who could not even come and hear him preach, but one who prayed. And so I think of the four who came to Jesus. I don't know where those four heard about Jesus, but I know that they were so sufficiently impressed by his power that one of them must have been enthusiastic. And he said, oh, if we can only bring our paralyzed friend to Jesus, Jesus can make him well again. Jesus can make him whole. And so that's what they set about to do. Well, people who pray can have a tremendously important and significant part in Key 73 because the Spirit of God responds to prayer and people's hearts are opened as a result of it. One of the things that has always been most precious to me about being in Montreat is to feel the surge of prayer that has often gone up on behalf of the preacher by many people in this congregation. This is one of those churches where I have never come into the pulpit but what I have not had some sense of the fact that people out in the pew were really praying that God would somehow use me to speak that morning. And God uh, can use even the feeblest person uh, when we pray in that way. Well, not only are the people who pray like Marianne Adlord, but the people uh, who have that contagious, enthusiastic zeal. Stephen Mayhew this morning in the session couldn't wait till we got to the question where he said where we said uh, do you give yourself to the lordship of Jesus Christ he got the answer out before we ever got the question to him he was so glad and that enthusiasm has a way of communicating itself and there are people who can pass the word to others you know that's how we really come to believe it's not just that one single individual is responsible but a whole raft of people are responsible people who pray and people who encourage us by their word and bring us under the preaching of the word and do you know that this example here of this paralyzed man who was let down in the presence of Jesus is an example of faith they believed in Jesus they showed that they believed in him how they showed by their works didn't they it was a lot of tugging and pulling to lift up a man who was totally paralyzed and bring him along a dusty road and try to get him through a crowd of people and then to carry him up some stairs and then to tear up the roof and then to let him down. If I ever saw an example of faith and works, this is it. You heard about the little Sunday school boy, didn't you? Who heard a lesson about faith and works. And he said, by grace are you saved through faith. If you work. <laughs> well, he, he had a lot of truth that he was getting across, even if Paul wouldn't agree with the way he put it, I don't think. But, but it, this is true. They worked. They, they had faith, and they worked to, with it. And they brought their friend to Jesus, and they got him there. And Jesus looked at him. When he saw their faith, their faith was evident by their works. When he saw their faith, he said to the man that they brought, "'Son, your sins are forgiven.'" This represents those who work, those who have faith. When I look back over my own life, and I think of the people who were most instrumental in bringing me to a faith in Jesus Christ, I have to think first of all about my mother. I can remember as a little boy, my mother taking the Christian Observer and reading it to us. I can remember her kneeling down on the floor and putting her arms around my twin brother and me and praying for us. And you know, you never get very far away from a mother's prayers like that. Even when you're a little child, they somehow stick in your mind. Maybe one of the things that's wrong with a great many young people today is really not so much their fault as it is the fault of those of us who are parents that we have not prayed more often or more sincerely or more fervently with them. I think of Sunday school teachers. I could list a long line of Sunday school teachers in the little Salvation Army Sunday school that I used to go to, in the boys club where I found a place to play basketball and to box and wrestle. And the Salvation Army has left a great impression upon me with their threefold program of soup, soap, and salvation. It was good. They always had all the, all the boys came in. They were given a bar of soap. And you went to the shower, and then you, you uh, were admitted into their Sunday school. You had to take a bath to get in. <laughs> and, and it was good for us. I, I remember that very well, the little, the little Salvation Army Sunday school that I went to, and then the Presbyterian people who took us in and befriended us, and how natural it was to see that they really wanted us, although we were poor, and they wanted us in their fellowship. And then I think of all those Sunday school teachers that taught, from the, uh, the little grades on up, and what an impression that they made. Don't ever belittle your role as a Sunday school teacher because God uses that role. And then, you know, I think of, of the example of pastors that I had. I remember one pastor during World War II who did not have an automobile and who had to ride to make his pastoral visits on a bicycle. I remember when he did not have uh, much money, and yet his example, uncomplaining example, left a great impression upon my mind. I remember him teaching me uh, to read the Bible and uh, uh, to learn it. I remember other pastors that came, pastors who would take me with them hiking or fishing, pastors who wanted me to love Jesus Christ, one old country preacher that I'll never forget, he used to always insist that we have a blessing. Even when we were on a picnic or even when we were camping out, he wanted that blessing said. And that made such an impression on me that I've always wanted to follow the example which he left. I saw him go into house after house inviting people to come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then I not only think of these who are officially connected with the church, but I think of other examples of people who profoundly influenced my own life, people who were near my own age. In fact, this week, I received a letter. I received a letter from Waco, Texas, from the widow of one of my friends, a boy that I first met as a freshman in high school whose name was Ted McElroy. Ted McElroy was about the smartest young man that I ever saw. He went through four years at our high school, and when he graduated, he took the top honor. He had over a 99 average for four years of academic work. I remember his sweet smile. I remember his kindness. I remember that he went away to Texas Christian University. He took a degree with great distinction there, and having graduated from TCU, he went to the School of Theology, Bright School of Theology. He graduated with honors and distinction there and won scholarships to Germany. He went and studied at famous uh, universities in Germany, and then he came back to teach in this country and to preach. But something happened to Ted. About 10 years ago, he had a dramatic encounter with the Lord. He had embraced a form of biblical criticism which had all but taken his faith away, And then through a great experience of the ministry of the Holy Spirit, Ted McElroy came back to a simple faith in Jesus Christ. His ministry became so empowered that people know him in many parts of the country and in the city of Waco, Texas, his name is a benediction. Last year was a full year for Ted. He preached at the Trinity Church in Waco. They had a large uh, uh, school, which they had, a grammar school, He was responsible for it and responsible for a big ministry. But at the end of August of last summer, he began to feel tired. He was tired because he didn't know it at the time, but a plastic anemia had already set in in his bones, a fatal disease. He kept on preaching. On the 13th of September, he preached his last sermon. On the 17th of September, he preached his last sermon in the Trinity Church in Waco, The sermon was on the beatitude, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Ted did not know it at that time, but the sermon which he gave that morning was his last sermon. Within another month, he would go into the presence of God himself. When Ted died in October, and the word spread in the city of Waco that Ted McElroy had passed into the presence of Jesus Christ, it seemed that So many people in that community turned out, the letter that I received said that the funeral was set for 2.30, but that by one o'clock the whole sanctuary was filled. That people stood in the corridors outside and filled the rooms, and they put up auxiliary loudspeakers. Then they had to take them out into the yard. So many people had come. There were those who said of Ted McElroy, that his life more exemplified the life of Jesus Christ than any other man that they ever met. I knew him as a boy, and I saw Christ in him as a boy. And other people saw Christ in him as he went on. The Lord does not take lightly the death of his saints, but even in his passing into eternity, this man has brought other people to Christ. When I read last night the letter that his wife wrote to me along with other friends, I got on my knees beside my bed, and I asked God to make me more like Ted McElroy because Ted was like Jesus. Well, these are ways in which we can bring people to Christ. We can bring them to Christ by letting them see Christ in us. And what are the benefits of such redemption? You know, I've been thinking a lot lately about this problem of drug abuse, and the way in which it has harmed so many people, I had a long, frank talk with one of my young friends who has lately come to Christ and who has been through the drug scene just this past week. We began to talk about how he first became interested in drugs and why he got into it. And you know, I'm sure that a great deal of the drug abuse that has occurred comes about from a guilt-ridden conscience I think that there are many young people who have been given a false standard of morality, perhaps by some people in the church as well as people outside the church, perhaps by the media and the motion pictures, and they have done things which they know inside their souls are evil and immoral and wrong, and then later they seek the escape of drugs in order to get away from guilt feelings. I've wondered about this man that Jesus healed. He turned to the man and said first to him, Son, your sins are forgiven. And I'm sure that the healing for many a broken life must come first with the forgiveness of sins. There may be that splinter of guilt which is embedded within us because of things which we have done which we know are wrong, which have festered and have robbed us of our peace which have caused us to distrust other people and to speak cruelly and evil of them. And maybe those festered things ought to be gotten out into the open. And before we experience any real healing, healing that will enable us to be free from paralyzing guilt, we need first the forgiveness of that sin. Forgiveness comes about when fellowship is restored with God and we know that things are right. And when fellowship is restored with the other person and we know that things are right. Then there can be built again a mutual trust and a love. A love that is based upon the love of God and a forgiveness that has now made things right. This has to be. I think it needs to be brought about in the church. I remember one service that was disturbed, disturbed in a beautiful way. I talked to the young man and myself. He is now a Presbyterian minister. He's preaching in a pulpit this morning. You know what happened to him? Well, he was quite a hellion, and he broke his father's heart. He went away from college and away from all restraint, and he did every evil thing that he could think of. And you know what happened? He came home one weekend, and his father was preaching. His father is a Presbyterian minister also. In that church, it was the custom to give an invitation for people to come forward at the conclusion of the service. But before the father ever got to the invitation, his son, in the back of the church, a big college boy, got up and literally ran all the way down the aisle of the church and clutched his father by the robe and fell at his father's feet. Emotion, yes, yeah. overcome with emotion, but it rejuvenated the Presbyterian church, and it was real, real in such a way that it brought revival to that church before, because forgiveness had taken place in a healing way for those whose lives are empty for those whose lives have been broken by drugs, for those who have been hurt because of the sins of someone else, let me say to you this morning, as psychiatrists have said to many a patient who have come to them, get that festering thing out into the open and let God cleanse it and let him forgive you and then make things right with him. I want us to stand in prayer. Let us bow our heads in prayer. Let me say this, and please listen carefully. The emphasis this time in Key 73 in churches everywhere where this program is being embraced is on love and forgiveness and repentance. It's on the preparing of the heart of the witness to be able to witness. Now, if we are forgiven of God, we have no choice but to forgive the other person. So right here, this morning, in the presence of Almighty God, as his representative, I want to ask you, if you have in your heart any grudge toward any person, will you now confess it silently before the Lord? Will you now confess it earnestly before the Lord? And will you pray that Christ will forgive you? And then will you take whatever steps you can take to make amends toward the person who feels offended toward you or, or whom you have offended? In the name of Jesus Christ, accept his forgiveness and be freed from that guilt. And now, O God, our Father, we pray that you will help us to live as people who have been forgiven and be willing to show that forgiveness to other people. Help the love of Jesus to be shown in our lives. Teach us that life is very brief and very precious and that it ought to be used to your glory, and that one way in which we can glorify you is in keeping the injunction of that first lesson we read this morning in loving one another. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the communion and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, our keeper and our guide, be and abide with you all now and now and forevermore.